Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 266. And today on the show, we're joined by Kip Adams of the Quality Deer Management Association for a discussion of the state of whitetails in 2019. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today in the show, we've got Kip Adams, the Director of Conservation for the Quality Deer Management Association. And we're going to chat with Kip about the recently released 2019 Whitetail Report. Um, we've done this almost every year since the beginning of the podcast. Each year, QDMA puts out this report. And then we kind of have this State of the Whitetail discussion with Kip, kind of like the State of the Union address, but this is like the State of the Union for deer. Um, so that's what's going to happen here shortly. But I do have Dan the Man Johnson here uh, for our pregame show, which we haven't got to do in a few weeks. So It's been a while. And this is Future Mark here. Uh, quick heads up, if you do not care to hear about the random stories and crazy thoughts and deer hunting and shed hunting plans that Dan and I have that we discuss here in our pregame show. If you just want to get to the interview with Kip, you can fast forward to maybe like the 17 and a half, 18 minute mark to get right into that. But I highly suggest you stick around for the weirdness. It's been too, too long, Dan. And I've actually been thinking a lot about you lately. I don't know if you could, <laughs> I don't know if you could feel that. And, and I've been thinking about you lately, late at night. While I've okay. been laying in bed. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think I've been feeling that same way too, Mark. Go on. <laughs> but it's for it's for very different reasons than I imagine why you're imagining me. <laughs> this is because. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just spit it out before I'm reading mine start to wander. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually reading a book where the character's name is Nine Fingers. Really? Yeah, the guy's name is Logan Nine Fingers. And now just the whole time I've just been picturing, you know, when you, well, I don't know. You don't read much. Can you read? So what, I think when you <laughs> when you read books, lots of times you imagine what the person, the character might look like. 
And so, <laughs> so I just imagine this guy looking exactly like you. So you right. are this character in this book. Um, pretty badass character, though. You, you walk around with a sword and uh, you, you kill a bunch of people. So, yes. so yeah, you're, you've got a good character. Um, it's a good book. It's called, I think it's called By the Blade Itself or The Blade Itself, something like that. Kind of like a Game of Thrones type book, kind of nerdy but but gritty. I've been doing some Game of Thrones lately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You I, like the show? I yeah, I just started watching it last month. Ooh, so uh, how far are you into it? Down. I'm on season three right now. Season three. Okay, so no spoilers. I won't tell you too much, but uh, it's good. It's really good. Cool. Uh, it, and it gets even been better. Thinking about me. Yeah, I've been thinking about you. I'm glad you're you're watching Game of Thrones now. And yeah. um, if you pick up reading at some point, this will be a book I'll send you to as well. <laughs> so, so that's all I've got for the intro today, folks. We're going to go to Kip Adams now. <laughs> no, man. Just burn Dan Johnson and then, uh, and then hang up. All right. I like your style. How are you, man? It's been that's too good. long. I know. I know. I don't know. Has, has uh, your mouth been watering as much as mine to get out and do some shed hunting? Yeah, man. That is exactly what I was hoping we'd talk about because yeah. that's – Especially we just had, you know, I'm sure you guys had the same thing. Tons of snow and cold, and then now this warm spell. So all the snow has melted here. And um, it just looks like prime, as you would say, scooping. It looks like prime scooping weather, uh, or scooping conditions, I should say. Right. I tell you what, in Instagram, there's some guys, not close to me, but in, I guess, in Iowa, who have been finding some good sheds already. So it makes me want to get out even more. I know. I, I I am very tempted to go out and do like an early walk. You know, at least for me, I never want to go out too much too early and start pushing things around before most deer dropped. At the same time, though, like you said, there are antlers out there, and you hate to have antlers laying around and then get chewed up. You know, right, right. When do you think you're going to start? When's your first shed plan? Well, that's funny you ask, Mark Kenyon, because there is a chance if I can swindle my mom into watching the kids, I might go on a walk Saturday with the wife. Nice. Main farm down south? Yeah, and not dig into the timber at all, but probably just the field edges um, where all the corn was this year. And uh, we had some late corn, and I, I even think we had some snow on the ground before before the harvest so the last time I checked, there was still, uh, I mean, this was December, but, uh, still a lot of corn left on the ground from when they did the combining and, uh, the beans were standing late. So hopefully some of the pods and stuff dropped off and, um, hopefully that just kept the deer in the area late season. And I have kind of a repeat of late February last year when I found those nine in one day. Yeah, what's the what's the situation in that little honey hole? Is that where you saw the good food still sitting on top of the ground? Right. It was uh, same field, but the let's see. This year the corn was closer to the road as opposed to last year. It was closer to the back fence line, and uh, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to shed hunt in corn stubble. Not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. And I felt like if I just go back and forth every row, maybe I'd try to, you know, I'd find some matching sets, but, you know, uh, try to match up, especially the big one, but it, you know, I'm not going to do that. Just not enough time. So, you know, you hit the, you hit the, uh, the power places and you move on the buffer strips, right? (laughs) Absolutely. 
Yeah, I um I'm a little concerned, at least for my local shed hunting, because uh you know, on the main Michigan spot, I have an average of one shed antler a year across all yep. the properties I can shed hunt in that area. And yep. I already have that one shed for the year. So I'm worried that I, I haven't even started shed hunting and I have the one shed because I think I told you, um, neighbor shot that buck survivor, right? I told you that story yep. and he found a shed on the property I can hunt while he was tracking the deer. So he gave me that shed. Um, so I'm a little worried that I haven't even started yet and my shed hunting is already maxed out. So traveling will probably be the name of the game for me, but, uh, right. Yeah, I think probably mid February is when I'll start maybe hitting it hard, but I'm yeah. I'm probably gonna be tempted to do a little edge walking maybe even this weekend too. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice to get out there a, a little bit even before the snow melted just to see their travel patterns through the snow. Yeah. And see almost where you need to concentrate. But oh man, a majority of the snow, I think like sixty, seventy percent of the snow is already melted and even down south is even more. So um and it it almost sounds like we're gonna get some snow later tonight or and tomorrow a little bit, and then it's gonna warm up again and thaw again. So Saturday could just be a, a mud fest. Um speaking of snow coming in and melting off and then getting poured down again. I am trying – well, it's hard to say right now. In the past, I've always planned my Iowa shed hunting trips based off of, like, when the group's going to go and, and kind of try to coordinate things with some some of my buddies here in Michigan so we all drive out together. But I think this year I'm going to try to stay a little more flexible and try to just make it out there when it seems like you guys have a good snow melt. Just make sure that the yeah. conditions are right. Um, yeah. But I'm going to try to get out there for, like, a week maybe. Oh, really? In maybe early to mid-March, yeah. depending on conditions. So we'll have to see if your schedule lines up at all to come uh, do some walking with us again. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, dude. I just the, – the older I get, the more I love shed hunting. I don't know what it is – why, really. I mean, I love doing all the other things like – early season scouting and doing the tree stand work and the run and gun and the actual hunting. But there's something about shed hunting that I just, I don't know, I'm drawn to. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, I know you don't have a whole lot of flexibility in schedule and stuff sometimes, but if you can somehow sneak away and you want to do a long drive, I'm hitting out, uh, heading out West again for some shed hunting in late March too. And, um, where are you thinking? Probably North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, somewhere around there, um, okay. give or take. I don't. I, I have zero set plans yet, but I, I'll probably yeah. go to Montana for sure because I'll go there for some meat eater related stuff and hit some of the properties I know around there. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't mind trying to extend it and hit some stuff on the way or something. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, a good transition because as of right now, other than thinking about shed hunting, I've also been – doing a lot of thinking and early planning on what I'm going to do for my Western trips next year. Yeah. And I'm going to do the elk hunt. Right. And then I've got the tentative, right. When I asked the wife, she was in a good mood. So I might be doing a second Western trip, uh, a mule deer hunt in South Dakota. So nice. if I do make a, like a Western March ish type, you know, shed hunt thing. I think what I'm going to try to do is go to some of the places that I've scouted, uh, through Onyx and get, you know, get some boots on the ground and at least just get a lay of the land. 
yeah. out there and, you know, call it shed hunting, but really scouting. Uh, without giving out too much detail, are you talking like Southwest, South Central? Like it must be Southwest, right? For muleys? Uh, well, they have muleys all over South Dakota. So I've, there's basically, if you cut the state in half East, West, I've had people give me information all like just all on the West, West coast or West side of the state. Yeah. 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 So North or, uh, Northwest, Southwest, um, North, I think it's Northeast of the Black Hills. Yes. So, okay. Yep. That whole, I mean, that whole area is pretty awesome. I mean, you would, you would love that terrain. I drive through it a lot when I'm going back and forth from Montana. And every time I drive through, I'm just kind of salivating, just wondering why aren't I, why I'm not hunting here. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's the, you know, I got, I got some good Intel. Uh, I got some good, you know, then I started doing my research. Um, and now it's just a matter of making it happen. Uh, I don't know. That's so I've been spending a lot of time on Onyx lately. <laughs> it's easy to get sucked into that. Oh man. It's so easy to, yeah, I, I got, I've got like two different things that will end up sucking my time in at night. If I'm not reading a book, I'm either looking at Onyx, looking at like public land stuff, trying to find different places to hunt, looking at river bottoms or scouting this thing or that thing, or I'm looking online at properties for sale. I'm doing like one of two different things, either looking at properties I dream of buying or looking at DIY stuff I want to dream of exploring right. and, um, and not sleeping. So we're yeah. both we're both inflicted in that way. Um, yeah. How did you manage like this? Are you cutting back on some of the rut stuff? No, um, I don't know yet. Right. I mean, I don't know. I there I'm to the point now with uh, I think I told you a little bit about this, but I'm to the point now with the Sportsman's Nation that I might be getting close to being able to step away from it. Right. And step away from my job and and potentially do this full time, Uh, you know, the next two or three months, probably actually up until June will tell me a lot. And if I can get the things that need to be gotten done, done, then I'll be able to have a lot more freedom in my schedule, AKA hunt in Michigan. Right. I was was just going to (laughs) say that was the next thing out of my mouth. (laughs) Right. So I would, uh, I, I gotta make a lot of, you know, some things happen yet. And if I can make that happen, you know, everything becomes a lot more flexible. And, um, I really want to do, I really want to do this mule deer hunt, which I think I'll probably be doing anyway, regardless of if that happens, you know, my wife has given me, I'm in a good mood now approval. I don't know if you know what that means, but yeah, you, when you, I you take her, it, you take it and run though, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. So she'll be mad at me then. But right now she said, yeah, that's, you know, she said, yeah, that's okay. But you're, you're going to do what you want anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. That means you're setting proper expectations, Dan. That's good. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, what it sounds like though, is like you're taking this week long trip to Colorado for elk. You're going to spend however long it's going to be out hunting mule deer I'm going to draw an Iowa whitetail tag this year. It sounds like someone should be watching over your Iowa ground, taking care of it, monitoring trail cameras, taking a deer or two to make sure it's being properly managed. I know a guy that might be able to help you with that. How many points do you have? I think I'll three. I don't know if that'll get you in my spot, but it might. I don't know. I'm in, I'm in the zone south of where you typically hunt. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, usually I think that from what I've always heard that that's like a three or four point zone probably. So, yeah. um, 
so yeah, it's that's definitely not a sure thing. I'll probably apply for the usual spot I do, because um, it should be a sure thing there. But um, well, that'd that'd be that's something we need to talk about a little further afterwards. Because if you have enough points to draw my zone, I might be able to find some some spots for you that you know they would they'd they'd be better than anything probably you hunted up in that north zone. But you might have to fight some up. Uh, fight with some other people but you're doing that already yeah a bunch of people is it like yeah. when you say fight stuff is it like arm wrestle is it i mean what kind of fight are we talking because i'm not well equipped for necessary arm wrestles but i'm kind of quick i'm slightly surprising in, in certain ways so i might be able to take a guy yeah you're tall you're lanky the lanky guys always seem to get it done long right? arm long arms long spam. arms right so at least when you're trying to slap them to get away from you <laughs> You can keep the distance, right? Yeah, that, that's my style too. <laughs> Lots of slaps. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, we should talk about it some more. Um, my buddy Dustin was supposed to come out and hunt Iowa this year. Corey hunted last year. He's not coming. Josh was talking about coming and hunting this year, but all of them, are, they're all bailing. So now I'm, I'm the, probably the only one coming out. So my, my plans are very much up in the air. But um, it's all exciting. I'm already yeah. fully gung ho for shed hunting, and it's before you know it, we'll be out there holding the bows again. So absolutely, and that's one thing, man. I, I'm so freaking busy right now that just with work and everything, and family, and and planning, and it's like I get to bed and my brain's not shut off because I know I need to be, you know, shooting my bow or doing something bow related, and I'm not. And I, I need to be, so it's almost like I need to spend an hour at the end of the day, even if it's just drawing my bow back 10 times, I need to be doing it. But I've been a, I've been a bum when it comes to that. Yeah. I, I admittedly have not been doing very well the last month either, but one thing I did do, which I need to do it again, but I set up a very short range archery range in my office. Literally it's just 10 yards through yeah. a closet but that's just enough where you can just practice like your release, you know, draw back and just focus on a perfect surprise release. And that was something that helped me a lot last year um, that, you know, when you can't get outside, it's just a nice way you can get, you know, a few shots in every night just to keep that form. And I don't know, just work on some of your fundamentals that probably helps better than nothing. Right. Right. My luck is I'd probably blow through the target <laughs> and put a hole in my drywall or worse yet, like hit something electrical and just like the worst case scenario happens and I burn my whole house down. <laughs> I, uh, I can't remember who this was. It might be our buddy. Uh, I don't want to, <laughs> uh, a friend of ours, um, once was doing this inside of his house, shooting at a target inside the house, trying to practice during the off season. And if I remember correctly, he missed the target, went through the drywall and burst a water line. No shit. Yeah. Burst of waterline. <laughs> <laughs> so really be careful about how you set up your indoor range. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man. Well, um, we probably should. We probably should wrap this one up and get Kip on here. But um, let's chat more soon about shed hunting and, uh, and possible Iowa double teams and, and maybe Michigan. There you go. I like it. All right. Let's take a quick break here. So we want to thank our friends at Morton Buildings for their support of this podcast. And Morton Buildings are the builders of 
wood frame steel covered buildings that can be used for all sorts of different things related to what I think you and I probably want to do with a hunting property or a home or a storage facility. They can, they can build pole barns, they can build garages, uh, actually pole barn houses, all sorts of different types of storage facilities, lots of options out there, very customizable. And as I've mentioned over the past couple episodes, I've kind of been dreaming about having a pole barn house of my own someday. I imagine one where you've got maybe a quarter of it is a large open garage area, and then the other three quarters of the building are this really open space. I imagine like vault ceilings, very high ceilings with a big open area that includes like your living room, your kitchen, your dining area. That's all kind of one big opening. And then there's going to be a loft where a couple bedrooms are going to be. That's kind of like my dream little home that maybe if I someday can can afford to get a little hunting property or buy a little spot maybe out in Montana someday, I want to put that pole barn house on it. And Morton Buildings, they seem to be the ones to do this kind of job. They have several things that make them particularly an interesting option. They've got some exclusive energy performer insulation, which is going to help make for more efficient heating and cooling. They have high rib steel that requires almost no maintenance at all. And now, through February 28th, 2019, there are some special promotional prices for Morton Buildings. So you can learn more about that at mortonbuildings.com. All right, here with me on the line now is Kip Adams. Welcome back to the show, Kip. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, always good to talk to you. Yeah, I agree. I feel like somehow I, I let the, the ball drop last year because every year since we've had the podcast, I believe, we've had you on the show to do kind of a state of the white tales address as you kind of each year do your whitetail report and you kind of share your findings here with us and, and somehow I forgot to get a hold of you to do that last year so I'm glad that we're back on it uh, I know there's gonna be a lot of interesting stuff to dive into but before we get to that Kip I actually wanted to um to to, to poke and prod you to tell a story <laughs> at least uh, at least one story here Kip I saw you killed an awesome buck out in North Dakota and I haven't got to hear what happened could you tell us that story I sure can, and, uh, and and yes, that's correct, Mark. I was very fortunate and got to shoot a really nice deer uh, on my friend's land in, in North Dakota. And uh, there's actually uh, a kind of two unique parts about that. Is, is one, um, I met this guy through QDMA a number of years ago at a deer steward class, and we, we've remained very close friends since, and uh, hunted together numerous times. So it's it's always nice to to get to go there, and uh, you know the, the the real value is just being with him and seeing him in the hunt, but uh, I was uh, very lucky this uh, this past November. Um, actually, my friend's uh, young son was hunting, and uh, we were a few days into the hunt. Uh, my friend's young son had not shot a buck yet, and uh, and I was joking with my friend saying, hey, you got to take a selfie while you're in the stand. You know, that'll bring your son good luck. You know, <laughs> Every time I take my daughter or my young son hunting, first thing we do is we get in the stand. We, we take a selfie of ourselves, and, you know, that that's supposed to be good to the deer gods and bring us luck. I like so, it. Uh, <laughs> Really, the uh, the morning that I shot this deer was it was less than an hour after light, and I I was in the stand, and uh, my but I knew my buddy and his young son were in the stand several miles away, and uh, and I had texted him, and, and I'm normally very vigilant when I'm on stand, you know I I may check a text or whatever, but I'm I'm mostly in predator mode at that point, and you know and I'm well anyway I texted him and said hey you need to send me you know a selfie for good luck, and uh, so I'm watching and I'm have a I'm sitting above of this. Uh, river, real thick uh, riparian habitat, kind of open around it, but uh, clumps of trees. So the the spot that I thought I would have the most like 
our most likely to see deer was a, was a very narrow crossing. So I had to be on guard for sure because when something came in, it could get out of it very quickly, and then I likely would never see it again. And uh, so anyway, I had to text my boy and said, hey, you need to send me a picture, you know, to bring Hunter good luck today. That's his boy's name. And uh, so I set my phone down and watching, and literally a minute later, it buzzes, and I look, and I can see a picture. So I know it's, it's my buddy sending it. And I literally picked my phone up, smiled because there's a dad, you know, proud dad and his young son. And I started to respond. And thank gosh, Mark, for whatever reason, I looked back up <laughs> and this deer that I shot had busted into this narrow opening and was quickly closing the gap. I wow. set the phone down quickly, threw my binoculars up and saw uh, that he luckily had, he had stopped momentarily, had this big, heavy chest. And he turned his head and I saw that one of his, uh, Antlers had a big, heavy blade on it, and I knew this deer is at least four years old, certainly well within uh, what my buddy would want us to shoot on his land. You know, I grabbed my rifle and immediately safety off. And so actually seeing the deer to pull the trigger happened very, very quickly. Literally shot it. The deer just ran a few steps and dropped. And then, you know, then the real nerves hit you. And I looked back down, and my I had just started to compose the text back to my buddy telling him, this will bring luck today, and <laughs> I had to smile at myself and think, oh, my gosh, you know, it did bring luck for me, <laughs> not necessarily for him. So uh, I responded to his text and said, great, you know, that's a great picture, you know, today is going to be the day, I can feel it. Thinking, you know, I'm talking about him, but, uh, you know, I will tell them later how the whole sequence of events worked out. So, uh, so I guess the selfie was good luck, but uh, it turned out to be good luck for me. That's funny. So, uh, uh, the second part of that that actually was unique, so anyway, it turned out to be what I thought initially was a, was a four-and-a-half-year-old deer. After I got the jaw out and got a good look at it, it, it actually was five-and-a-half. Wow. Um, sent uh, the incisors to Matson's lab, so uh, those will come back here in a couple of months, and I'll know for sure, but at least by tooth wear, it was five-and-a-half. But uh, I posted that on my Instagram page later, and I'm not one to share, oh, look what I shot. Like, I've never done that, but I will always share information you know to try to help others be more successful hunting and uh the, what i was stating with this was you know it was mid-november my friend and his father had thousands and thousands of trail camera pictures of deer on their farm you know and they scout all the time they had never seen this deer <laughs> so what i had said was you know boy today you know i was blessed to get this here's the the point of this you know they had all this intel never seen it so it, you know even if you're not seeing what you want it's mid-november just go hunting you never know what can happen yeah so uh, I post that literally, you know, an hour later, I get a message from somebody that I do not know through Instagram that said, hey, you know, where are you hunting in North Dakota? And they sent me a picture. Uh, anyway, it turns out it was a picture of the buck that I shot. Wow. They had trail camera pictures of it. They had actually watched it uh, during the summer, had seen it alive, had trail camera pictures. The rack was very unique, so there was no doubt it was the same deer. Long story short, uh, these people are from North Dakota. Um, the the wife's father is a friend of my friend's father who from out there and they know each other. It turns out they had land pretty close together. Wow. So, uh, I mean, I, we got lucky. I shot an incredible deer. Uh, I made some new friends out of it. Um, it was just a really, really special deer and special story all the way around. That's great. That is awesome to see. Um, all that, all that great camaraderie with your buddy there, you're hunting. And then, like you said, having someone kind enough to reach out and, and share pictures with you, that's, that's kind of the, you sometimes hear about the, 
the downside of, of people taking deer hunting so seriously and people getting jealous and, and letting deer get in the way of friendships and things like that. And this is the exact opposite of that. The, the very, um, the very best of what we can be as deer hunters. And I think that's a, this is a great example of that. Oh, I agree. I agree. That's terrific. Um, so it sounds like where you set up in that spot, it was, it kind of sounds like a great kind of pinch point type situation for cruising Buckster in the rut. Was that the setup? It, and it really was. Uh, it was, you know, rivers tend to, as you know, tend to, to be great movement corridors anyway. You know, and a lot of deer coming in into and out, they'll use those to travel long distances. And uh, just the way the, the brush patches were arranged, you know, it was kind of going from cover, piece of cover to cover. And uh, because, you know, it's a perfect place for does to be in there and lay in bed. And so I think he was taking advantage of the terrain to make it most likely to be able to get from one point to another but then hitting those brush patches on the way just to see if any other deer would lay in there or bedded. Uh, so uh, um, they, it really worked out well for me that morning. I'm very lucky for sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great kind of spot to be in, in mid-November, no doubt about that. Um, well, congrats, Kip. That's a beautiful, beautiful deer. Awesome story, too. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate that. Yeah. So so let, let's get right into, the, I guess, the meat and potatoes here, though. You and, and I think... Matt Ross still is, is involved with the, with the Whitetail Report, too. You guys put out a heck of a document every year. Um, for those who aren't familiar with this, can you give us a quick rundown of what the Whitetail Report is um, and why you guys do that every year? Sure. Uh, the Whitetail Report is a, really a State of the Union look at what's going on in, in the Whitetail's world. And we started this uh, just over a decade ago to provide up-to-date information on deer harvest, age structures, the biggest concerns impacting deer herds, you know, big regular regulation changes, uh, that kind of thing, for for deer hunters and for natural resource professionals and deer managers and in the media uh, all throughout the Whitetails range. Uh, you know, there was no one consolidated uh, source for all of this information. So uh, every fall, we survey every state and provincial uh, wildlife agency and uh, and get information from them on the prior year's deer harvest age structure of that harvest, timing of the harvest, and then uh, the, the biggest issues impacting deer management in their state or province. And then we put all this data together, uh, compile it, and then go through and uh, analyze it and see what we think will be most important or most meaningful and helpful for deer managers and, and hunters. And then uh, we put it together in this document that includes three parts. Uh, part one is uh, deer harvest information. You know, state by state and province by province information on number of antler bucks that are shot, and then uh, you know how many bucks are killed per square mile per 100 deer hunters, how this compares to prior years. So it, it's a nice way to be able to look at how your state compares to other states in your region or other states in the country, just to see uh, what's going on within uh, the deer hunting world. And uh, we find it very helpful. Uh, I literally have every one of these on my desk and uh, use them on a regular basis. Uh, it's a it's a great source of information, and uh, I tell folks is you know if you're a deer nut, uh, you want to get your hands on one of these just to, to see this kind of information and uh, kind of how your state uh, uh, pairs to, to others. Yeah, it really is fascinating information, and it's it's available for free to download. Right, folks just need to go to the QDMA website, and you can get the whole document this year and all the previous years still too. Right. 
That's correct. Yep, yeah. all free downloads, and uh, they're all listed right at our website. Yeah, it's it's great. I, I'm kind of curious. You mentioned this is now ten years. You guys have been doing it. Have you seen any changes in the quality of reporting and, and tracking from the state agencies? Have have they started to track more things and provide more data now that there's people like you asking for this stuff? Have you noticed anything along those lines? We have had noticed a big difference in uh, the 2019 report that we just published is, uh, is the 11th uh, annual copy of it. So back in 2009 when we first did it, um, state wildlife agencies get asked or get provided surveys from, you know, outdoor writers and, and different folks throughout the course of the year. So, and, and I remember when I was New Hampshire's deer biologist, I remember those. And at times it can be a little overwhelming, you know, asking for all this information. So the very first year we did this, um, it was met with, you know, some resistance by some agencies that, yeah, you know, I handle a lot of the stuff. I don't have time for this. Or, um, But I kept uh, egging them and pushing them and, hey, you know, can we please get this? You know, this is what we're doing. But, uh, you know, we certainly didn't get information from all the agencies then. And, it, and we still don't now, but we get it from the vast majority now. So in the early years, we had to, we had to pull teeth from some of them to try to get information. But then over the course of time, we found out that, you know, they started using it as well, and it was useful for them and helpful for them. So uh, as soon as they realized, oh, yeah, this is good and helpful, then we can get the data a little uh, easier, which is good. And, uh, and I tell every state's deer biologist uh, each year when we send the survey, hey, you know, we want this to be helpful to you. If there's any questions that you would like to include on here that you think would be helpful or help you in your job, you know, let me know, and, and we're glad to include those. So... Over the, the last 11 years, we've, we've had several questions that were uh, um, asked by state wildlife agency biologists, such as, you know, hey, it would be nice to know, you know, whatever, you know, this is uh, around the country. So, uh, yeah, so it's nice to put those in. We try to make it helpful to them. And today, it's a lot easier uh, to get, or it's a much better cooperation between us and the agencies you know, with them submitting this information. So, yeah, that's a good thing, a very good thing. Yeah, that's great. So that being the case, you're getting more data than ever, higher quality data than ever, and you've been doing this for 11 years now. Um, you've seen kind of some ups and downs. I remember, gosh, I don't remember if it was 2014 or 15 or somewhere between 13 and 15 in that ballpark. I remember we kind of had a little bit of a rough patch as far as, um, harvest trends and disease, and there was there was some concern within the whitetail world. Like, are the good old days behind us? Maybe um, there was some sense of concern. If you look at things at a very high level right now, Kip, how what's your sense of things? What what is the state of whitetails today in two thousand nineteen? Well, there's a lot of really positive trends uh, in the whitetail world. Um, I'm an optimist, so I tend to see things with a glass half full anyway. Um, but there are some some really positive trends, such as things like uh, what you had talked about. We had you know, 2014 was kind of a year where, wow, things were just really not good from a harvest end, from a disease end. Um, but per, certainly from the buck harvest side, we have really recovered from that. And uh, we're, our buck harvest rates are getting up to some pretty uh, historic numbers where we've returned to, to killing a lot of bucks, which hunters certainly like. And... Uh, the one thing about it that, that's very different from the past is that the age structure of those bucks is considerably older today. So, uh, you know, we're, we're killing some really high numbers, but rather than the majority of them being one and a half, you know, today we have a very balanced age structure in the harvest where only about a third of them are, are yearling bucks, 
about another third or two and a half years old, and, and a full third today are at least three and a half. You know, so we're killing a pile of deer today, bucks that are three and a half, four and a half, five and a half or older, and uh, so that's pretty special. And uh, man, that really gets deer hunters excited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And kind of along those lines, I saw an interesting thing. Kind of speaking to the tracking, the new tracking, I saw that you're also now able to get some doe age structure data, which I thought was was something I hadn't remember seeing in past years. I thought that was interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I saw the the largest group of doe harvested across the nation were three and a half or older as well. Is that is that correct? That is correct, and uh, and yeah, the the doe age structure is different than the bucks. Um, in but uh, or is different in that by far the biggest segment of does are three and a half or older. And uh, we started that uh, a few years into this, probably just to see, hey, what what percentage of all the antlerless deer taken are fawns? You know, that's always interesting for hunters. And then uh, we started looking at that data and realized, now this is really good. You know, we need to incorporate this annually. So we have included that the last few years, and it is good to, to watch, hey, percentage of all the antlerless harvests that are fawns, you know, versus yearlings, and then uh, those hitting that oldest age class. So uh, if for nothing else, it's, it's pretty apparent in some states, you know, the difference between percentages of does that are three and a half and older versus percentages of bucks that make it to that older age class. Uh, it's pretty eye-opening for, for some hunters and, and even some, some wildlife agencies. Yeah, I imagine. So going back to the buck side of things on the age structure, um, when we chatted two years ago during our last podcast like this, I remember that we, we talked about how the the number or the, the percentage of bucks that are three and a half or older, that number had I think was the highest it had ever been. And I think you had said something along the lines of, we expect that it'll probably just stay around here. We don't think it's going to keep trending up. This is probably like the natural, um, the natural point that it's going to fluctuate around, give or take. It seems like that's kind of been the case now. It's kind of been around that, or give or take, one-third or so. Um, as you look at our, our, our breakout of age structure harvest across the nation, do you feel like we're kind of reaching that equilibrium across the board, uh, or do you see any dramatic changes coming in the future? I think that we have probably hit a very good point from a, from a health standpoint, both from a herd health and, uh, and hunter opportunities point. Um, what I do foresee in the future is I am guessing you're going to start seeing an increased number of yearling bucks again and a, and a decreased number of older bucks. Um, directly as a result of the increased spread of CWD. So uh, I think that for a while we will see some change, not a huge change, but but some. And uh, I think there's really two parts to that, Mark. One is you have some states that once they find out they have CWD, they are encouraging hunters to reverting to shooting yearling bucks, um, which has met with some uh, disapproval from, from some hunters. Um, not all states are doing that, though. Uh, my home state of Pennsylvania is, is, is firmly supportive of maintaining the antler restrictions and, uh, and keeping those in place and uh, making sure that they provide some additional harvest effort to the antlerless side. You know, so, so I don't think Pennsylvania's age structure is going to change a lot anytime soon. But, uh, but we have seen that in some states that uh, find CWD and start encouraging hunters to shoot yearling bucks again. So I think it will change a little because of that. And then long-term, I think it'll change, and, and we're starting to see this uh, in the, the endemic area of Wisconsin right now. Um, when CWD has been in an area for a long time, 
and uh, you just start seeing that age structure there start to decline because you're just not ending up with a lot of bucks getting it into those real advanced age classes. So, so I think that what we have right now from a national uh, harvest age structure for bucks is probably as good as it's going to get, and uh, we might start seeing a slip here in, the, in a little bit in the coming years. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to dive into. Excuse me. I want to dive into the questions around managing in CWD areas and age structure, and should you be just killing every buck, or should we still be trying to manage for older age classes? Um, but I guess before I go down that wormhole, because I imagine that'll take us further and further down, um, I want to stick just to the generic harvest questions. One one more thing here, and that is around doe harvest, because um, you mentioned that buck harvest is up. But I saw that doe harvest is down, and it's down quite significantly over the last 10 years. What do you make of all that? Oh, uh, you're right. It is down. It's down close to 20% during the last uh, 10 years. And, uh, and I think there's a, a couple of things for that. One, um, as the, the QDM movement really has been going the past uh, two decades, you know, just like anything, uh, a pendulum kind of swings both ways. And uh, a while back, you, we kind of had the pendulum swinging all the way over to really aggressive doe harvest. And uh, right now, I think it's just kind of swinging back the other way a little bit because there are a bunch of antlerless harvest opportunities in numerous states that hunters just are not taking advantage of. Your home state of Michigan is, is a perfect example. You know, in parts of southern Michigan where uh, the hunters routinely take a lot more bucks than they do antlerless deer, even though the DNR is begging them to shoot more deer. So, so I think there's a little bit of that, Mark, where you have some folks just unwilling uh, to, to shoot enough antlerless deer. Um, and also, there are places where we just simply can't shoot as many antlerless deer anymore. Um, during the, the last decade, you know, we had some really aggressive antlerless harvest where states were trying to balance deer herds with the habitat. You know, and, and hunters uh, responded to that challenge and did that. So there are some agencies that now just provide fewer antlerless harvest opportunities because they don't need to shoot as many antlerless deer. So that's playing into it a little bit, as well as fawn recruitment rates continue to decline, and uh, particularly throughout the southeast, uh, mostly from predation concerns. So uh, when you have uh, you know, a much higher mortality rate on fawns and you're just not bringing as many fawns into those populations, uh, just simply can't withstand the same antlerless harvest as the past. So. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer everywhere, but there are, I think those are the three primary reasons uh, that are causing this big reduction in antlerless harvest. And uh, just kind of have to look at whatever state's specific situation they're in to figure out, uh, you know, which of those main three are, are most applicable. Yeah, it seems like this is kind of uh, to your to your point about the pendulum. This is a little bit of us seeing the results of some of the changes coming from those years of 2013, 14, 15, where there was concern about, you know, populations and issues with disease and issues with all these different worries we had at that point. And and, and to what you alluded to, a bunch of states did change their regulations there that next year. I remember Ohio cut back on doe tags a lot. A whole bunch of states cut back a little bit. So we're probably, we're still seeing some of that today. But you mentioned fawn recruitment too. And I, I, I recall back in 2017, that was, again, one of the things we talked about, how we're seeing a little bit of a negative trend with fawn recruitment. Um, can you, for those who aren't familiar with what fawn recruitment is, can you just explain that once and then just elaborate a little bit more on what that trend is we're seeing um, and, and a little bit more about predation versus habitat and how those things might impact it? 
Sure. Uh, the, the fawn recruitment rate is the number of fawns that survive their first about six months of life and, uh, and are alive day one of your hunting season. So, uh, and it's expressed as the number of fawns per adult doe in the population. So there are obviously a lot more fawns that hit the ground in the spring that die to predation, disease, cars, et cetera. So uh, the fawn recruitment rate is a measure of the number that are born, but also then survive to be uh, eligible for harvest on day one of a hunting season. So uh, it's essentially a measure of, of those that live to be about six months of age. And uh, that is an important statistic because it's a, it's a big measure of how productive that deer herd is, you know, how many fawns are being recruited. Um, that's directly impacted by habitat quality and uh, predation rate, et cetera. So uh, that, as much as anything, gives you a good feel for, you know, how many antlerless deer can we take uh, from a population to keep it healthy and sustainable. Uh, you know, and, and it also means about, you know, how many bucks are we going to be recruiting into these deer herds? Because about every other fawn born is a buck fawn. So fawn recruitment rate is a very important measure for deer managers to, uh, to, to monitor, and uh, we do that in this report and uh, just to keep track over time of how that changes on a state-by-state basis because that gives you a lot of information on numbers of antlerless deer uh, that you should be harvesting annually. So, so with that being the case, you mentioned that fawn recruitment rate has been dropping, especially in the southeast, I think I remember you saying. Um, how dramatic has this been, and is it to a point of alarm? Is it something to be expected? Um, what do we make of that? Well, over the last few years, it does seem to have uh, bottomed out. So we've kind of hit, I think, as low as we're going to go, which, which is a good sign. But uh, to give you an idea, we've been monitoring this since 2000. Uh, and in 2000, across the U.S., uh, the average fawn recruitment rate was 0.81 fawns per doe. So, you know, for every adult doe out there, they recruited 0.8 fawns into the deer herd. Now, the first thing listeners who aren't familiar with will say is, well, wait a minute, you know, does have twins, and that is true, but, you know, less than half of those twins survived to be six months of age. So uh, 0.81 fawns per doe back in 2000. Today, that has dropped to 0.65 fawns per doe. Huh. So uh, essentially what that means is, you know, today it takes three does to, to recruit two fawns. So that is very different from the past. And, uh, in fact, this past year, there's only two states in the entire country that recruit uh, at least one fawn per doe, uh, those being Illinois and Kentucky, uh, two uh, very uh, productive states, obviously. So uh, the fawn recruitment rates are always lower than many people think, but uh, they, have, they have changed dramatically since 2000. And, uh, but it does appear over the last few years they have kind of plateaued, which hopefully means they're not going to go any lower, and uh, we can uh, you know, start managing uh, more effectively at those levels. Yeah, so is there, uh, I, I imagine it's probably a combination of all of the above, but from your perspective, what would you would you point to any one thing of, that you already mentioned, that being predation, or would you say it's something like predation and habitat and any other factors that have led to this decline since 2000? And, and then the, the follow-up to that question would be then, what's our response moving forward? Is there, what would you recommend we as managers be thinking about to try to move that number back up in the right direction? Um, I think the, the biggest reasons for this are uh, predation is one of them. Uh, habitat is, is a big one. Um, 
over throughout the Midwest, uh, much of that, particularly the agricultural Midwest, you know, the most limiting habitat component already is cover for deer. And uh, with loss of CRP during the big corn years, you know, we lost a, a quarter of all of the land that was enrolled in CRP programs. Um, through, you know, that's the most successful habitat program from through the, the federal government we've ever had. And there was millions and millions of acres lost for, that were great cover that were put back into row crop uh, production. So that's a huge loss for, you know, for those deer. And uh, that was kind of through the Midwest. In much of the forested parts of the country, we have forests that are maturing. So a mature forest don't provide anywhere near the fawning cover that young forests do. So, uh, so that's the habitat component kind of outside of the Midwest. So, yeah, increased predation, um, loss of habitat. And I think in some places, um, uh, nutrition was playing a factor. You know, we have rising deer herds again in many areas. And uh, if you, as soon as you end up with uh, more deer than you really should have in a certain area, um, first thing that gets impacted is their health and then fawning. So um, I think those are the big three measures with, with predation and habitat loss by far being the biggest two. Yeah, so you, you referenced the CRP oh, issues over the past few years, how they've they've been re- reducing the maximum number of acres eligible to be part of the, the Conservation Reserve Program. And a new farm bill just got approved recently. Um, Kip, are you familiar with the details of that new bill, and, and are you aware of how that looks as far as conservation measures for deer and deer hunters? Is it, is it look like a good farm bill for, for what we're up to? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I am not familiar, Mark, with all of the ins and outs of that, and uh, um, I need to become familiar with it. Uh, I, I just haven't since that thing finally got signed. Yeah, it was a it was a lengthy process from what I what I understand. I haven't got to dive into it too much myself either, but I did see um, that the the max limit for CRP was raised a little bit over what it was a couple of years ago, um, but not very significantly. So I have heard that some folks uh, in the conservation and the wildlife space were a little disappointed with that. Um, but that's as, that's as far as I went uh, on that front. But I'll be interested to see. I definitely think, to your point, it's been such a successful program, so helpful to wildlife out there. Um, we need that. We need that CRP. Um, you mentioned maturing forests. Something in the Whitetail report um, that I found interesting was uh, what you guys are calling the Young Forest Initiative, uh, which seems to be an effort to try to um, address what you talked about with the, with the challenges of maturing forests. Is that something you can speak to a little bit and, and what's going on there and, and why that's of concern for, for deer and deer hunters? Absolutely. Uh, we are huge supporters of, uh, of this Young Forest Initiative, and, and we're fortunate enough to have uh, an employee uh, based out of New York who works specifically with landowners to help uh, encourage them and then help them get uh, more young forest uh, on their properties. And essentially, we know from, from a deer habitat perspective that uh, mature forests provide very little food and cover for deer, somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds of browse per acre. That's it. And uh, young forests can provide upwards of 750 to 1,000 pounds of food per acre. Wow. And they provide tremendous cover, you know, the cover that fawns need to survive, cover that adults need uh, to feel secure on properties. So young forest, and that's essentially, you know, a forested area that is anywhere from zero to about 10 years of age. So think of, you know, those thick areas that were just, you know, you can't see through them, it's hard to walk through them. You know, those places are perfect for deer from a food and cover perspective. 
But uh, unfortunately, you know, many of the forests in the United States, as they mature, you know, they just uh, become far less valuable for deer. So uh, this initiative helps provide information for landowners uh, of the benefits of having young forests on their property for not just deer, but there's a whole suite of wildlife species that really benefit from that uh, component, the habitat component. So our guy works every day with folks, uh, shows them uh, what they can do to get that, how that will benefit them, how it will help them meet their personal uh, goals on the property, and then uh, helps walk them through the process to actually make that happen. And uh, this is a really, really good program for deer and a whole host of other wildlife species. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And it's funny, I, you know, came from a family who kind of was of the old guard when it came to trees. You know, they always thought you, you had to plant trees. You don't want to cut down trees. So my, my grandpa was always planting trees in all of our old fields on our on our deer farm, our deer property up north. And it was sacrilege to cut down a tree that was living because that just seemed like not the right thing to do, right? You wanted to help grow things, um, not kill unnecessarily. And, you know, he we had no idea back at the time that oftentimes – setting things back is actually the very best thing you can do for wildlife. But I think there are a lot of well-meaning people out there who care about conservation, care about wildlife and wild places, and they see a timber harvest or something, they think that's a bad thing. And there, I think I think it's fair to say that in some cases maybe certain ways it can be done isn't as, as good as possible, but there certainly are very – uh, there are plenty of positive things that timber harvest done in a sustainable way can do. Um, just a lot, a lot, of, a lot of folks maybe don't realize that. So there's a little bit of a PR problem, I think. Don't you think? Absolutely. No, there definitely, definitely is. And um, I grew up very much the same way as you described, with uh, you know protecting trees and not cutting. And uh, so uh, we kind of uh, loved our wildlife to death, I guess, from that perspective. And uh, some mature trees are certainly needed, and particularly if you live where you do or even farther north where I do, you know, we need some of that cover for, for winter cover and that. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of tree, a lot of deer, you know, that, that live their entire life, you know, and never see a, a mature tree. You know, think of South Texas and, you know, western Kansas, places that deer hunters would love to go. You know, there's no huge trees there. Yeah. So uh, deer don't need them nearly as much as, as we think they do. Yeah, they certainly they certainly appreciate diversity in habitat and edge and openings. Um all those things are, are so crucial for, well, not like you said, deer can survive in a whole lot of different situations, but they certainly do better with some things present. And um, I, was re- I was reading a recent issue of Quality Whitetails, and there was an article talking about this on public lands and how many, many of our national forests, especially in the southeast and northeast of the country, are reaching a high level of maturity and, and just there's, there's very little active management happening. You get out west, there's there's little more management going on. There's certainly a lot of fire out there that is naturally setting things back and opening things up in the understory and revitalizing um, kind of the, the younger growth. But that's not happening on the eastern side of the country. So we're getting many of these same issues that you just talked about, not just on private lands, but also on public lands, these very large pieces of public land. And this whole PR issue, I just brought up the fact that a lot of people that are probably well-meaning, they don't want timber harvest because they think that's going to be bad for wildlife um, or for you know the, the natural landscape. But in many cases, right, they're actually loving it to death by not allowing active management. And in this article, um, I thought the author did a nice job of, of talking about the fact that this is an opportunity where 
we can actually help as deer hunters and deer managers. We can actually help with a public resource by getting involved in meetings and making our voices heard and start spreading the good word about, hey, like there are some positive things that can be achieved with some active management in these places that can help benefit all of us, whether you hunt or hike or whatever. Um, uh, are you familiar with, with uh, what Bruce was writing about in that National Forest article, Kip? Uh, are you talking about Bruce Ingram? Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, I thought that he did a very good job with that, a very yeah. good job. Yeah, I think that just is a great reminder for any of us, even if you don't own land, um, you certainly can find a way to, to make a positive difference by just getting your voice out there locally. There's lots of different meetings going on around public management of some of these national forests and larger, larger public places, and that's a great chance to get involved and um, share share this kind of information because a lot of people don't realize it. Um, so I thought that was uh, that was worth noting. Yeah, I thought he did a good job, and, and along those lines, that's why I'm I'm so proud of one of our new five year goals at QMA. You know, is to double the number of habitat projects that our volunteers do on public lands, and uh, we have so many branches that like to do that and. You know, as an organization, we don't have the ability to purchase a bunch of lands to then open them up to hunting. But that doesn't mean that we can't help public lands. And uh, so that's the niche that we've taken. Hey, you know, well, we may not be able to buy them, but we absolutely can help make what we have now better for folks. And uh, so particularly in the north, more of our northern branches get involved with the habitat enhancement of public lands than our southern branches to this point. But uh, we look forward to having a lot more of our folks doing that. And, uh, man, I think that is great for everybody all the way around. I 100% agree. I think that is so great that I've been seeing some of that happen here in Michigan. And um, I'd like to personally get involved with some more of it because I think, you know, I know that you guys at QDMA, you're working hard to make sure that deer hunters out there know that you guys are representing not just people that manage deer on their own land, but but all deer hunters. And I think this is a really great way um, that, that you know members of this organization are stepping up and doing that very thing. You know, helping improve the quality of hunting, whether you own land or not, and helping our entire herd, whether it's on private land or public land. Um, I think that's that's really walking the walk, and I was I was glad to see that happening. All right, let's take one last quick break to thank our partners at Onyx. And Onyx is the producer of the Onyx Hunt app, which is just about the most handy and useful mobile application I know as a deer hunter. I'm constantly using this thing that provides aerial view maps, topographic maps. It shows you property lines, public land borders. You can mark waypoints. You can share waypoints. You can see weather data. It's uh, it's it's kind of always in my rotation of tools I'm using and actually an interesting use case of it that I just uh, was working with yesterday I think it was driving down the road heading to the grocery store and I see a field just full of deer I mean 30 40 deer all feeding out there on some corn stubble and I'm thinking to myself man I'd love to shed hunt that adjacent timber lot what do I do in that case I just pulled out my onyx hunt app on my phone I looked to see who the landowners were and I'm like okay I can go see where that person lives Go walk up to the door, knock on it, try to get shed hunting permission. So I haven't done that yet, but I do know who I need to talk to. And that is one of my favorite things to do with Onyx. So if you would like to learn more about Onyx or try it out your own, you can go to your mobile app store of choice and download it or head over to onyxmaps.com. I want to ask about something we brought up a little bit ago, though, Kip. I want to rewind the tape just a little bit and get back to CWD. Because I feel like if, if I were taking the temperature of the whitetail hunting community and asking them, you know, what do you think the state is of, of whitetail 
these days, whether it be the quality of hunting or, or just what's kind of bubbling under the surface as far as tensions or questions or debates. And it's been around for quite a while now, the, 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 the talk around CWD, but I do feel like more recently there's been there's been a little bit more of a vocal pushback on CWD management, on CWD as an issue at all. Um, some some kind of somewhat prominent voices dissenting on the the public or the, the the most common opinions on it. So I guess that's a long-winded way of me saying, Kip, where do you feel we stand right now with CWD as far as the threat it poses, as far as our reaction to it, and what are your thoughts on some of the uh, I don't know if you want to call them deniers or the naysayers on how we're trying to manage CWD. Where where are you at on all this, and, and where do you feel like when you look at the state of things, do we stand as a whole? Well, uh, I've either been conducting research on deer or, or managing deer hunters for, for over 25 years now, and CWD is, is by far the, the single biggest issue that, that has arisen during my career, and uh, and, and I'm guessing will be uh, for, for the remainder of my career. So, uh, CWD is is very important. Um, I think that it is a huge issue, and uh, but I also think it's one of the most complex and, and most misunderstood issues, um, partly because of the way that it, it attacks a deer herd. Um, if you take a look at the, the wildlife experts today who are, who are researching this and, and who are studying this, um, there, there's a lot we don't know about the disease. Um, you know, when we've put millions of dollars and then a lot of time into it, uh, uh, there is a lot we do know, but there's still a lot we don't know. And because of that, that creates room for a lot of people to argue or, uh, you know, uh, dismiss uh, a management technique or strategy that somebody else has suggested. So uh, there's, there's no doubt that we have a lot yet to learn. Uh, however, if you take a look at the, the vast majority of the people who are really studying this, um, the, by far most of them, side on this side that, hey, you know what, this is a really big issue and something that is more than uh, the attention that it's getting. Um, there are certainly some uh, who don't believe that, some wildlife experts that, that are on the other side of the issue. Um, if you take a look, though, the, the number of folks on who don't think this is a big deal and that this is all uh, blowing smoke, uh, that number is, is very small. And, uh, and I think one big difference between the two sides is the, the side that tends to say that this is not a big deal and hunters don't need to be concerned, um, almost all the, the folks on that side work primarily with captive deer herds. Um, and this, this is nothing negative at all to, to captive deer or deer farmers. That's not what I mean. I, I share that to say the vast majority of deer researchers and managers who work with wild deer, with free-ranging deer, think that this is a really big issue. And I think it's important for the hunter to understand that when, when they hear, you know, oh, this is an issue or this is not. I think they really need to take a look at who's saying that, you know, and, and what, what side of the fence are they coming from. And uh, so I think there are certainly some things that we know with regard to CWD that um, can help from the captive side. For instance, you know, the, the one genotype of deer that appears to be a little more resistant to the disease. And, uh, and captive folks are, you know, are breeding that to help them. And I think that's great. Uh, for us on the free-ranging side, that doesn't really help us, though, because that genotype does exist in the wild, but it doesn't do very well with Mother Nature. She weeds them out quickly. So, uh, you know, unless you can take care of that animal and from an animal husbandry end like you can inside a fence, it doesn't really help us. So I think it's very important for hunters to just realize, you know, 
who is giving them information, you know, and, and what what animal they're managing. So we fall on the side of we're taking care of free-ranging deer, and this is a really big issue for them, but by far the biggest issue of my time and then probably yours as well. So uh, I think that states have uh, tried a few different things. Um, I'm very encouraged to see states like Pennsylvania now actually are trying something different, you know, an alternative management strategy, which I think is very good because we don't have a lot of success stories with what we've done so far. However, what we do know is that if we don't uh, find a success story or change what is going on, you know, the future of deer hunting is not good for any of us. And we have so many hunters that say, well, I'm not finding all these dead deer. You know, is this really a big deal? Uh, It really is, because even though we don't find a lot of dead deer from it, the research shows that deer with CWD die at three times the rate that those that don't. They just end up dying to predators or guns or cars or something else first. So we don't see that, oh, yeah, this was impacted by CWD. So since hunters don't see it, they think it's not a big deal. But, but that's not true. That's not true at all. So uh, it, uh, I think it's a huge deal. Um, I think that it warrants the attention that we give it. And, uh, man, I really wish that from the wildlife community side, you know, we could be a little more on the, the same page with what we are actually saying or what information we're sharing because it doesn't do any of us any good to, to spread, you know, inaccuracies like we don't know if it's a disease or it's just a condition. That's not true at all. We know absolutely it's a disease, but uh, hunters are kind of scared of it, so if they hear somebody say what they want to hear, boy, they really gravitate to that and then hope the problem is going to go away, but uh, that's not the case with this, Mark. This is not going to go away without us solving. Are there any other common inaccuracies that you hear getting put out there today that every time you hear it makes you cringe? Like, is Are there any other, like, very popular inaccuracies that you want to correct real, real quick? The big one, you know, I often hear is, well, we don't find dead deer all over the place. So, uh, you know, these deer, even though they have CWD, you know, they're still reproducing, so we're okay. Um, that's, that's not true because <laughs> since they die at three times the rate of other deer, you know, at some point when you get enough of that deer that is CWD positive, they are going to be dying, you know, quicker than they can re- reproduce themselves. So our deer herds start dropping and dropping. And uh, you take any deer herd right now, if all of a sudden you add, you know, a 20 or a 30% mortality rate on top of that, that is very quickly you can realize, wow, I'm going to have a lot less deer to shoot in the future. I'm going to see a lot fewer deer. Um, so that, that is a big one, partly because as CWD infiltrates a deer herd, you know, we don't really notice any difference until it gets to the point where it has affected a large portion of it, and then we are going to see dramatic population declines. The thing is, though, once it gets to that point, you know, we have no way of stopping it. So we need to stop it right now or at least slow the spread while there's only, you know, one or two or maybe even 5% of a deer herd is uh, impacted. You know, once we get to what we're seeing in Wisconsin now, you know, we're 25, 30, 35% are CWD positive. You know, we're going to start seeing major changes in that Wisconsin deer herd in the near future. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we can't stop it. So we need all these other states need to stop in their place before they get to what Wisconsin is about to experience. Yeah. So, so that brings us to the next big point of contention for a lot of people, which are the management strategies in places where they do find CWD. So a lot of people point to, you know, one of the commonly held gripes is that, well, we found out we had CWD and then, you know, then the agencies just kill all the deer or they come and they wipe out the deer herd. So they 
kill way more deer than the disease does. Um, so there's a lot of concern around that. Um, where do you feel like things, I know you mentioned that we haven't really found a great successful example yet of the right management or, or reactive strategy is to CWD, but the Pennsylvania is trying something different. Um, can you speak to what Pennsylvania is trying and or where you and QDMA see the best opportunities lying as far as the next thing to try? Sure. Uh, I think that, the, that there has never been an issue that's going to require more cooperation and partnership between the state wildlife agencies and hunters than this. Never before have we needed to work more closely together. So uh, we encourage agencies to, to reach out and partner with hunters at, at unprecedented levels, share information, um, you know, do everything possible to provide multiple, multiple opportunities for the information, why this is important, how this can help. So uh, I think that is what has to happen. And from the hunters, they need to engage the agency, you know, and ask questions, ask how they can help, you know, how they can be a part of the solution for this. So uh, a good example of, I think, right now what's going on in Pennsylvania, and, and this, this certainly is not without contention here either. There's a lot of hunters very upset. But uh, in one of our disease management areas, uh, uh, two counties, uh, Bedford and Blair counties, the Game Commission has been monitoring the prevalence rate of CWD since 2012 when it was first identified there. And essentially what's happened is it's gone from, you know, less than 1% of the deer have it, and it's climbed right up now to about 5% of the deer have it. And if you take a look at that, it's following the same CWD prevalence rate trajectory that Wisconsin and, and West Virginia have. So if we continue what we're doing right now, which is, you know, try to manage it and shoot some extra deer, it's very realistic, Mark, that in the next decade, that prevalence rate is going to go from 5% of the deer to 25% of the deer. So not good. We know if what we're doing right now continues, the future is very bleak. That's not going to be good. So what the Game Commission said, hey, let's do this. We want to reduce the number of deer in that area to a certain level. And uh, the good thing is they feel that looking at data from Colorado and Illinois, they both have some success stories of doing what or doing something very similar to what the Pennsylvania Game Commission is going to try now by reducing those numbers, they can maintain that prevalence rate where it is and not allow it to climb. And that's really what we need to do is slow the spread of this disease until the science can catch up and, you know, and help us uh, solve this problem. So what the Game Commission said is we know if we continue what we're doing now, the future is not good. However, let's go in, reduce the number of deer, and try to hold this rate right at this 5% level. So to do that, they increased the antlerless tags for that area. They increased our DMAP coupons, which is Deer Management Assistance Program coupons, which allow landowners to harvest additional antlerless deer. You know, we want to take this deer level down to what they're saying is 2,000 to 2,500 deer in this study area. So uh, hunters got the first chance to do that, and uh, they certainly took some. They didn't take as many as the Game Commission wanted. So here in the very near future, Wildlife Services is going to, through the USDA, is going to go in and sharpshoot some additional deer to bring that deer herd down to about 2,000 to 2,500 deer. Do they think then they can hold the level there. Well, what's going to happen is, you know, hunters hear, oh, my gosh, they're killing all these deer. You know, then you see the signs. It's a deer slaughter. It's a deer eradication. And those are the things that we really have to guard against because, yes, they are taking some deer. They're probably going to shoot about 2,000 deer in there. However, they're not eradicating the deer. There's still going to be a very huntable population left, 
And what the, the deer biologists in the Game Commission estimate is once they reach that target goal, the deer density in that area is still going to be equivalent to the average deer density in every state that surrounds Pennsylvania. So there will be fewer deer, yes, but a still a very harmful population, you know, and in the name of protecting our future. So that is very good. So we support that. Now, what really needs to happen is better messaging from the Game Commission to just be out talking to hunters everywhere saying, we're not eradicating deer, we're not, you know, eliminating your deer herd. You know, we are reducing it, but you're still going to have a very huntable population and kind of explain all that. Um, you know, messaging, I think, is key on this because, you know, a lot of hunters don't hear from the Game Commissioner, hear what's happening. And as soon as their buddy tells them, oh, they're going to wipe all the deer out, well, then, you know, it's just a bad train that gets off the tracks, and then that's not good for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like so much of CWD uh, management is hunter management in that you have to find a way to address the disease concerns while also maintaining collaboration with the hunting public, right? And I feel like that's where we're losing in some areas. In some states, there's a lot of negativity around it. One um, one aspect of this in which I know that I've read some stuff from you guys where you've said specifically that it's really important to try to address CWD in a way that still maintains hunter engagement. And one of the things you talked about was maintaining the ability for hunters to still manage for older age class bucks and hunt older age class bucks if they if they choose to do so because that's obviously been something that a lot of hunters are interested in doing these days um so this brings us to one of the management strategies with cwd you hear some folks saying well bucks are if i if i get if i've got this ratio right correct me if i'm wrong but i believe that on average two out of three cwd positives are bucks so bucks for whatever reason seem to have it more often and then also i think i remember reading that Older age class bucks tend to have it more often. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there too. But all that's to say that I've heard some people say that some people that are very aggressive with managing CWD have said we got to kill them all. Like kill, or sorry, they want to kill bucks right away. So they're saying no more managing for older age class bucks. We're going to kill them at a year and a half old. Um, while I've heard others say, well, does that mean you can't have any kind of quality deer management anymore while also caring about CWD? What What is uh, your take on that, Kip? And I know QDMA has, has kind of shared some thoughts on that as well. Can you elaborate? Sure. Uh, there's really two different main strategies that agencies have taken with regard to managing CWD. You know, focus and harvest effort really on the buck side to drive that uh, age structure young. And many states have, have followed that. And those are the states that then remove the antler restriction on yearling bucks and you know, try to kill those deer before they can disperse because, yeah, bucks uh, tend to have a higher prevalence rate than does. And then as they get older, that prevalence rate increases. So on paper, it says, you know what, the best way to fight this disease is to keep populations low and to keep age structures very young. And uh, that works great on paper. But that's not the real world. And, you know, and it's... The, in the real world, you need hunters to execute your plan. So you can have the best CWD plan from your state wildlife agency, but if hunters don't support it, they're not going to execute it. And if they don't execute it, you know, it's not going to work. So what we have said is, sure, we understand that oldest bucks tend to have a higher prevalence rate of CWD. However, for hunters to want to stay engaged and continue to be supportive of agency programs and harvest analyst deer, 
you know, they need to be motivated. And in many cases, that motivation comes from the opportunity to photograph and hunt older bucks. So we feel it is far better to have some older bucks in a population if that keeps hunters engaged and then keeps them supporting the agency, harvesting the antlerless deer, and uh, supporting overall wildlife programs. So that, that is our take on it. And partly that comes from research out of Wisconsin that shows that uh, from the doe side, if, a, if an adult doe is CWD positive, uh, any of her relatives nearby are 10 times more likely to be CWD positive than another doe in the area that's not related to her. So essentially what happens is, you know, these antlerless deer, they can become reservoirs of CWD, you know, that we may never get rid of. So we don't think that you should allow all these bucks to become fully mature. That's not it at all. But we think it's far better to allow some of them to do that, to keep those hunters hunting and keep those antlerless deer herds or antlerless side, you know, trimmed down so the deer herds don't grow, you know, to be far too high, and then spread it from the antlerless side as well. And that's really the tack that Pennsylvania has taken. You know, they maintain their antler restrictions. They are really focused on effort, harvest effort on the antlerless side. And uh, in QDMA's opinion, and, and in my professional opinion, that is a better tact to take. Yeah. So, and in partly because um, with regard to uh, sex ratio differences in CWD prevalence, some states tend to be uh, you know, a lot more positive in bucks, as you said. Nationally, about two-thirds of, of all the deer that are CWD positive that we've identified are bucks. Some of that's a little bit of a sampling bias, though, where we just sample a lot more bucks, because you have some states like Pennsylvania and Illinois and Texas that uh, of all the deer they found that are CWD positive, it's a lot closer to 50-50 uh, bucks and does. So, so it's not always just the bucks. Um, we have to really do a good job to manage both sides of that deer population to be effective at this. Yeah. So, so everything you just said there, I think, supports what I'm next going to say. And, and you said it yourself a few minutes ago, that being that a lot of what we're trying to do, it seems, from a management side of things with CWD, is simply stem the, the, stem the, stem the tide a little bit, slow things down enough so that the research and science can catch up until we can find real concrete solutions. Um, is there anything on the research side over the last year or two, anything positive that's worth sharing? Have we learned anything new that's substantial? Have, have there been any advances or, or anything encouraging that's, that's worth mentioning? Well, they're, they're always continuing to try to develop a better live animal test, which is very good. Um, we don't have a great one yet, but uh, just the fact that we continue to try to find one is very good. Uh, they're recognizing the need to have a, a quicker and more reliable uh, field test for hunters as more hunters now have to hunt in these areas. You know, as you know, uh, in Michigan, where if you shoot a deer in a CW deer, you, you have it tested. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, anyway, you will have it tested. And then uh, Michigan last year set a goal of having the fastest turnaround time in the country. Hunter turns that test in, they get the results within two weeks. And uh, if, if for hunters who are not impacted by it, they think two weeks, you have to wait two weeks to know? Um, that is much quicker than others. So, <laughs> That's a long time to have to wait. So if we had a more quicker test, you know, the hunters could find out, you know, within, you know, a day or an hour or something, you know, we're not there yet. But that would be so helpful. And at least people are looking to try to do that. Um, so no success story there yet. But the fact that we are looking and trying just lets us know that, you know, we are one step closer to that. And, and that's very important.
Yeah, I actually just saw an article yesterday, I think, um, talking about a new test that they're working on uh, over in Minnesota. I think the University of Minnesota is, is seeking some funding for this. I think they just asked for a $2 million grant from the state legislature to, to look at something that it's – I can't remember exactly how this works, but there's a way that they're able to take – samples from even something like saliva or deer droppings and they can test it and, and instead of a two-week turnaround period on getting that positive result back or whatever result back they can now see a, a positive or negative result back in just hours with this new tool they have kind of it's more of a camera based tool um so i don't i don't know if that's going to end up being something that ends up being the solution but it was interesting to see something new being tried there and um like you said, we, we certainly need some some wins on that front. I also saw um, and wrote about this late last year. There have been a handful of different bills introduced nationally to try to increase funding for new research um, and, and additional testing and science done around this. And I think that's that's an easy thing that we as deer hunters can do is, is kind of get behind some of those things, right, Kip, and encourage our lawmakers to to, to appropriate some funding to that research, to, to prioritize that kind of stuff. Um, is there anything on that front that you think is, is worth us mentioning and, and touching on? Absolutely, and, and you are exactly right. You know, back in uh, the early 2000s when CWD was first identified in Wisconsin, and uh, there was a fair amount of federal funding, funding, I'm sorry, you know, close to $20 million a year uh, to provide help and information on that. And really, once they decided that, you know what, this probably cannot impact humans, almost all of that federal funding dried up. So well, because of that, there's a real lack of funds for research today on this. So, yeah, those bills that you mentioned, there's, there's actually three main bills that would all help tremendously from, uh, from the government end with regard to funding for research and funding for state agencies to try uh, alternative management strategies. Um, those are really big. So, yeah, that's something every hunter can do is let their – his or her legislator know, you know what, I support these, you know, please, uh, you support them as well. And uh, it'll take a big sportsman's push to, to make that happen. But that would that would be a huge step forward in the battle against CWD. Yeah, I'll make sure to include in the links on this podcast post the um, the names of those specific bills and, and how you can take some action on that and let your lawmakers know. Because I think that's, that's a simple thing we can do that could really help. Whether you you know, and I mentioned this last December when I wrote about this, whether you believe everything we're talking about here that CWD really isn't a big issue, or even if you are on the other side of the issue and you think it's all overblown, either way, both, all of us want answers, right? We want more research to, to clarify whatever our position is. And so getting funding for that additional research um, is crucial. And we all want answers, whether that's going to agree with what our preconceived notion is or not. We need answers, and I think this is one way to do that. So highly recommend everyone, if you've got an extra five minutes, to just send a quick email to your senators or your representatives and, um, and ask them to focus on that kind of stuff. And Kip, I know you're, you're coming up on time here, so I guess I kind of just want to give you an opportunity to, to A, share if there's, if there's anything else at the top of your mind as far as what's encouraging or what's concerning moving forward. Um, would love to hear any final other points that you think are worth mentioning. And then if not anything on that front, just what call to action you might have for all of us as far as um, what we as deer hunters can do moving forward to make sure that the state of whitetails is even more positive in 2020. Gotcha. Um, well, there, there's a, a tremendous amount of other information in, in the Whitetail Report that the hunters would be interested in, such as where you can use tracking dogs to, to locate wounded big game, um, 
deer processors, uh, what states you, what do wildlife surveys or, or habitat surveys, and a whole host of other things. But the one point that I will end with, and, uh, and actually, Mark, uh, this is the first time that I have shared this data because I just found this out, and uh, it actually, every year in the report where I said we have the total number of antlered bucks harvested and antlerless har- deer harvested, um, this year that, that total list actually lacks one state, which is Alabama because there was an issue with their deer harvest numbers that wasn't resolved by the time we published our report. So we published the data from everybody except them. Well, now I have their data. So uh, this literally is the first time that I have shared this information uh, with anybody. So uh, you, you have the sole source <laughs> of this. Um, last year, the 2017-18 hunting season, uh, is the first time since 1998 so it's been a long time. That season was the first season since the 1998 season that hunters in the U.S. shot more antlered bucks than antlerless deer. Huh. It was a big deal. You know, in 1999, for the first time ever, we shot more antlerless deer and then got on the road to really balancing deer herds of habitat and being good deer uh, stewards. And uh, following that, we had big gaps. You know, we shot way more antlerless deer than bucks. But the last few years... That's been getting closer and closer and closer together for the reasons that we talked about early in this show where we, you know, we're just not shooting as many antlerless deer as the past. And uh, now that we have Alabama's data in uh, last year, for the first time since 1988, we shot more antler bucks than antlerless deer. So uh, that, that's a milestone you know, uh, in white-tailed deer management uh, in the United States. So uh, you're going to hear a lot more about it, and uh, you literally uh, have the data first. So, so what do you take from that kip when you say it's a milestone do you view it as a positive milestone as a negative milestone as a i'm not sure i mean we, we talked a little bit about this earlier like what does it mean that doe antler still harvest has been going down but when you see this kind of shifting of the equilibrium at a high level what does that mean i i don't see it as a positive thing uh, and partly because in uh, the vast majority of deer management programs we need to harvest more antlerless deer than antlered bucks annually to have a healthy situation. Now, there are certainly some states that uh, should shoot more bucks annually than, than antlerless deer, places like northern New England. Um, and there are some states, like even Nebraska, that aren't as productive as much of the country, so they just simply can't sustain uh, harvesting as many antlerless deer as bucks annually. However, for the vast majority of states, we absolutely should be shooting more does than bucks on it in any given year. Um, so. The fact that last year we shot more antler bucks than does is not a positive sign for us. Yeah. You know, for a handful of states, that's okay, but big scale across the U.S., uh, that is not a good thing. And uh, even, you know, we don't have to be shooting twice as many antlerless deer as bucks nationally, but uh, the, the total at the end of the year, uh, we're focusing too much effort on the buck side of it and not enough on the antlerless side in too many states. Interesting. Well, um, that is that is very interesting to hear. And to your point, that's probably something that we need to talk about more about why that's happening and and what we as hunters need to be thinking about moving forward and making sure that we're not um, getting too tied up in in targeting big mature bucks and big antlers and and forgetting about the management responsibilities really that we have too. Um, but that's probably a conversation for another day. So Kip, for folks that want to find the Whitetail Report or who want to learn more about the Quality Deer Management Association or become members, um, where can they find that stuff? 
That's all at our website, Mark, at qdma.com. And, uh, and we'd love to say that, that QDMA is where deer hunters belong. So uh, anybody that's a deer hunter, we'd love to have them be a member and, and help support the future of hunting. Excellent. Well, I can't, um, I can't recommend what you guys are doing enough to other folks out there. If you're not a member of the QDMA yet, it's really a terrific organization. As you can see from what Kip has shared, just the, the knowledge and resource of data they have out there for hunters is, 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 is second to none. And they're doing a lot of great things for what we care about as well. Not to mention they're keeping Furter employed. And uh, if Furter's not employed, what's the Wired Hunt podcast? So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Very good. So, Kip, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Absolutely. It's always good to talk to you, my friend. You have a good day. You too. And there you have it, guys, another podcast in the books. I think the only thing worth mentioning right now is just, uh, and you know, I say it all the time, but it's one of those things where you know, I tell my wife, you know, I love you. I tell her that all the time. But sometimes maybe I wonder that I tell her it too many times, and now she doesn't you know, doesn't mean anything. She's just heard me say it so many times that now it's just kind of an assumed deal. Um, so maybe I'm making a mistake here by thanking you guys every week on the podcast because maybe you just hear it and you don't even think twice about it. But I'm just going to keep on doing it because it's not something I'm just throwing out there. It really is the truth. Every morning I wake up and I go to my office and I start working on a podcast or an article or an Instagram story or whatever it is I'm doing that day and I have to pinch myself and I have to remind myself how nuts it is that I get to talk about deer hunting in the outdoors and, and write about it and share my thoughts and experiences about it. I get to do that every day. It's such a blessing. It's something that I, I do not take for granted. And I, I find it to be a responsibility that I take very seriously, too. This isn't just something I'm doing for myself. I'm trying to find a way to do something that, that's helping and serving people, too. And uh, and I thank you because you guys are the ones who make all of that possible. So thank you for listening to this podcast. And I think I will just wrap it up by saying, until then, until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.